Hi everyone. Hello my podcast family. You are most very welcome to join us on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to transform lives by working through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's really great to have you here with me today and to join us as we make the journey through the Bible and the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of our daily lives. If you're here for the very first time, why not click on the subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcast from, and that way you'll be sure never to miss another episode. Always free, always freely available, and always in the public domain. Thank you. Do hang on at the end, and I'll tell you ways in which you can connect with this ministry and support it if you wish, or just receive other free Bible teaching resources. Okay, that's it for now. I'll see you at the end. Okay, we're here today picking up, well, recovering in a sense the same ground we covered last time. We're looking at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14 and the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So yesterday we did an exposition just through it, verse by verse. But today we're going to look at what it actually teaches us and what it might mean for us today. So before I try and draw some conclusions and some teachable moments from this passage, let's just look at Matthew's footnote at the end of verse 12, which is where we finished off last time, where it says, Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So this reference to disciples is not a reference to the disciples of Jesus, but rather to the disciples of John the Baptist. They're the ones who claim the body and they're the ones who bury it. And then it makes this interesting statement that they go and they meet with Jesus and they tell him what has happened. Now, as I said at the beginning of this passage, it's obviously mainly the story of Herod and the people around him. But the last person in the story, the last characters in the story, I should say, is these disciples of John the Baptist. And that's why I wanted to refer to this footnote of the story before going back and looking what the overall story might mean. You see, it's possible that Matthew added it to tell us how Jesus found out about the death and execution and the martyrdom of indeed his childhood friend, John the Baptist. Try and put yourselves in the place of the disciples of John the Baptist for a minute. At this point, you'll know that they followed him, no doubt been following him for several years, and they would have looked up to them as their leader, their rabbi, in fact. They admired him, and he was their mentor. And it says they were his disciples, which means they were, in a way, like his apprentices, his students. The whole idea behind the concept of discipleship at that time is that you would have a teacher and that you would have people who would learn, the disciples, the learners of that teacher. So they were learning from this man, John the Baptist. So at some level, they were personally and intellectually devoted to him as a leader and as an individual. So you can imagine when they found out that he was imprisoned, that would have had a great impact on them. And when they found out that he had been headed, they would have, I'm sure, been emotionally devastated. It doesn't take much imagination to see that these disciples were greatly upset and grieved 
in a way that many of us probably have also been grieved at one time or another in our lives. Now we normally think of grief in terms of just bereavement when we lose someone near and dear and that is certainly true and that's what is going on here but I think it's just worth adding a little footnote that grief can go way beyond that. Grief can occur whenever there is any loss of life or loss of identity. So not just the grief that people go through when they lose a loved one, there are other types of grief that are experienced, if you like, on a lesser plane. Anytime we lose anything that we are emotionally attached to, or a circumstance or situation or a relationship that we are attached to, at some level we experience grief whenever there is a loss. Now what the disciples of John the Baptist are going through is this intense level of grief but I just want to point out to you and hopefully it's helpful for us about what they actually did when they found themselves in this grieving situation. Well it tells us in this last verse they went and they met with Jesus. So I just want to point out in passing before we close off and I try and draw this whole story together, I want to point out that there's a helpful lesson here. It's not the main point of the passage, I grant you, but it's certainly a secondary point and a valid point and an intensely practical point. And that's why I'm bothering to just take a minute and say that we should do as they do and go and take our troubles and our griefs and lay them on the Lord. The Bible talks about casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. We are meant to tell Jesus all of our troubles because he is a kind, compassionate friend. When we have burdens that we cannot bear alone, we should tell Jesus and allow him to help us carry the load. In other words, we must, at times of grief or heartache, turn to the Lord and say, help me. That's what I believe is a subtext of this passage. I actually think that one of the most valuable spiritual lessons that you can learn in life is to take hold of the fact practically and really embrace it and do it that when you have a problem, you take it to the Lord. Whether it is grief as it is in this situation or just confusion about what decision to make or any burdens you're carrying or even just needs or even temptations anything else, anything that concerns you, I believe that you can take to the Lord. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, which tells us that we can therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. That's why we should take our problems to Jesus, because that's where the mercy is, and that's where the grace is available to be given to us that can help us in our times of trouble. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not opposed to you talking to a friend. I'm not even opposed to you talking to a counsellor. I think we sometimes really do need to talk to someone to share our problems. We are social beings after all, and God has created us that way. And I think that social interaction is a critical need in our lives, which is why so many people worldwide suffered when we were forced into these COVID-19 lockdowns. But what I would like to say, what I would like to suggest is that before you do anything, when you have a problem, the very first thing you should do is talk to the Lord. According to Isaiah, the Holy Spirit is our counsellor 
and that God himself is called the great physician. So who better to go to for counsel and healing than the Lord himself? He is the great counsellor. He is the one that can help us better than any earthly advice. Now don't misunderstand me. I know this might sound as if I'm opposed to people speaking to counsellors. And I want to say that that's not true. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I do think that part of what the body of Christ is meant to be about is us actually practically, personally supporting one another by meeting with each other and sharing our burdens. We are actually encouraged, particularly in the writings of Paul and the pastoral letters, to minister to one another. But that was never meant to mean taking the place of the Lord to begin with. That's my point. Take it to the Lord, but he doesn't have to do that in isolation. You can still go and talk to other people about it. But always, I believe, our first point of call should be to stop and take it to the Lord. Some of you might have heard of a very famous author named Oswald Chambers, who lived about 100 years ago. His pattern when someone came to him with a pastoral problem was to say, have you ever told the Lord about this problem? And if the person said no, he would usually suggest that they go home and tell it to the Lord and pray about it. And if they still needed to talk to him a few days later to come back and he would be delighted to see them. Anyway, that's a side point. Uh, let's get back to the main story and I'll try and wrap up this passage for us now. The point of this story, in my estimation, is that Herod has come to the conclusion we saw that Jesus Christ was the resurrected John the Baptist. Now, that first sight, that's confusing. But what I want to say is that story is telling us that before he arrived at that, what would seem to us bizarre conclusion, the narrative itself chose to tell us about the events that occurred before, ones that would naturally suggest he was probably feeling guilty about his part in the execution of John the Baptist. Now, this passage can suggest many different spiritual insights for us. For one thing, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about the bravery of John the Baptist in approaching and speaking truth into this charged political situation. Or we could talk about the loss of hearing from God in the two main characters of it, or how about the lewdness of the daughter-in-law, or the rebellious evil intent of the second wife Herodias. And that's only the beginning. But one of the unusual things that I think stands out, and I'll probably address some of those when we come back to this passage in other gospel accounts, but today one of the usual things that I think stands out here is the fact that Herod, although he believed Jesus was nothing other than John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He did believe that this person called Jesus was actually working miracles. So the idea that Jesus could produce the miraculous is something it would seem that believers and disciples and non-believers all could ascribe to. Here we have someone who doesn't know him or recognize who he is, in fact is mistaken about who he is, yet he still believes that what is going on is this, that this person is working miracles. Now I think we can talk about this passage to the sense of what it means within the context of the Gospel of Matthew. And as you'll know, if we were walking through Matthew and you've arrived with this, this section, gone through a point where Jesus is starting to meet real opposition and the rejection of him 
And one of the results of this, which we've been looking at over the past few days, is that Jesus is beginning to withdraw from the public ministry and begin to intensely prepare his disciples with teaching and preaching and miraculous events and parables, preparing them in a sense for his departure. But the most dramatic example of opposition, I think, raises its head here in this murder of John the Baptist. It seems to me that the great main point of the story is that both Herod and his new wife Herodias, they made wrong decisions about John, reached wrong conclusions about Jesus particularly, and and about the Lord and who he was, and they did that for the wrong reasons. So let me close by taking just a minute and analysing what their motivations were. And let's start with Herod's wife. She was motivated out of anger and vindictiveness. She made a destructive decision, not only one that would lead to the destruction of John the Baptist himself, but as we will see, did not work out well for her or her daughter. Had she listened to John the Baptist, he wouldn't have died, and she would no doubt have been a lot better off. But she didn't listen to him, rather she responded of malice, anger, vindictiveness, and she used her daughter her own daughter, to participate in a really sordid plot against him in order to have him killed. All of that says to me that we should never make decisions that are fueled from anger, revenge, hatred, anything like that. Just don't go there. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 29 in the Old Testament advises us when it says, Do not say I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his works. Proverbs itself is saying right back in the Old Testament, Don't go there. Don't do this sort of stuff. Well, what should we do then? Well, the answer, I think, is found in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, which teaches us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let me read to you from Romans 12, 17 to 21, where it tells us, teaches us, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is as possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to warmth, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, therefore, if someone has done something to you, Don't even think about responding with malice. Don't think about getting vengeance. Don't think about getting even. Back off and give place to God. In fact, take it to the Lord and let him take care of it. In fact, he will ultimately do a lot better job of dealing with this than you would ever be able to do. Herod, in this situation, it's very clear, he acted out of fear and he did that on several occasions. But what is not so obvious, though I think it is strongly implied, he also acted out of guilt. And when he acted out of fear and guilt, the decisions he made were destructive decisions, not only for John the Baptist by ending his life, but ultimately for Herod himself. So there's a lot we can learn from this. I think this is the point of the passage, the main point. It is to show that because Herod did what he did, and that he did what he did, motivated by fear and guilt, he came 
initially to the wrong conclusion about exactly who Jesus Christ was. He came up with this bizarre idea that it was actually the resurrected John the Baptist who he had killed. So his response was entirely fueled by the guilt of what he had done and the fear of retribution. And that's the sum of what I believe Matthew is mainly trying to tell us here. Herod, you see, the starting point is he came to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus Christ really was and how he should respond to him. Now, I want you to be clear, I'm not the only one who comes to this conclusion. One commentator I read, and I quote, said this, When he heard of the miraculous works of Jesus, he was sure that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and his conscience was troubling him. And another said, Even now the furies of conscience pursued him relentlessly, and he was sure that Jesus must be John returned from the dead. Both these 20th century commentators are saying the same thing. They're saying that he acted out of a guilty conscience, and it's never a good thing to respond in that way. Think about it. The miracles, the lovely, healing, miraculous miracles of Christ. So what is your explanation of who Jesus is? Is he just a great teacher? Is he the Son of God? Or is he the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies? Now in conclusion, I want to dig just a little deeper and ask how can we too arrive at the correct decision? I believe ultimately Herod arrived at the point where he did because he wasn't being objective. He wasn't being reasonable. You might say he wasn't even rational. He was acting out of emotion, negative emotions. We too can choose to respond to Jesus Christ by being objective and look at the facts. Don't be irrational and emotional. Don't let his willingness to call sin, sin, cause you to feel guilty and fearful. Because if you respond in that way, then you will make the wrong decisions about him and who he was. And you will probably make destructive decisions in your life, which will mean only end up hurting yourself and even other people. In this case also, Herod's wife is motivated by anger and vindictiveness, and she too made a destructive decision, and she aimed that wrath at John the Baptist, the one that she perceived as a threat to her marriage. So when you come to look at Jesus Christ, as you see him revealed in these scriptures, look and listen to what he says. Hear what God says. Hear that Jesus Christ is declared to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and that this same Jesus Christ died on the cross to free men and women from their sin. And that Jesus rose from the dead, and by believing and trusting in that, you too can have eternal life as a free gift, simply by trusting in him. If we look objectively at the fact, then the conclusion that most of us will come to, if we do it without prejudice or prejudgment, we will come to the right conclusion every time. Me personally, I came to that conclusion some time ago. But I have recognized in my life that when people are angry, fearful or guilty, they don't think straight and they're not able to make the right decisions. Now you too, maybe because of the events of your life, have a degree of anger or hurt or maybe or even grieving a situation. But I don't know how many times I've said to people, you just need to take time, wait a minute, 
Think about it objectively. Take it to the Lord. Meditate on it. Because you're in no position to make that decision today because you're experiencing those emotions. You can't literally think straight and you won't make a good decision. I recently talked to someone who had just gone through a bereavement and they were very, very angry at God at the circumstances with which they had had to live through the last couple of years and with the loss of their life. Yet at the same time, they had just begun dating again within three months of the death of his wife. And I said to him, you know what? I'm not saying he couldn't remarry again. He was free to remarry, of course he was. But I said to him, it seemed to me at the moment you're angry and you're grieving. So please don't even think about making a decision for a while, perhaps a year or a couple of years, maybe before doing anything like dating. And I believe that advice goes for any great emotional experience, anything that you've gone through that has had a large emotional impact on you. In other words, don't go there. At those points in time, you're in no position to be objective. When angry, or fearful or guilt-ridden, you're not able to see the grace that lies in the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. I know that in my life, every time I've made a decision when I'm angry or guilty or fearful, I have not made the right decision. Every time I've made a decision based on those sorts of emotions, I've made a decision that was not profitable to me in the short term and maybe cause great harm for me in the longer term. Bottom line, make the right decisions about Jesus Christ and who he is. And do it by seriously, peacefully meditating on the word of God, on the Bible and what it says about him. And then you will be able to be in the right place to make the right decision, not only about him, but also about all the other relationships in your life and how you should deal with other people. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. We finished off this very famous passage of the beheading of John the Baptist. I'd just like to remind you that we're about two and a half years into what I trust will be Lord willing if he gives me the time and the strength to be a 10-year project to work through the entire Bible chapter by chapter verse by verse. Now you can subscribe and receive this podcast free from anywhere you happen to get your podcasts from but if you would like to support this project then you can do that by going through to the Bible Project website which is hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com and there on the home page you'll see a link where you can help us continue making great content for listeners and seekers everywhere and support this ministry, starting from just £3 a month. That way, you will bring the amazing power of the Bible and the Gospel into the orbit of many more people's lives. And my hope is that this Bible Project podcast and the other spin-off teaching that I do will one day become completely self-sustainable by the support of just a tiny percentage of the people out there who are listening to it every day. 
But with that all said, you're very welcome just to listen along in whatever way you can. Use it freely for your own personal devotional time or in preparing studies for other people. And just out of interest, there is always a complete transcript of pretty much everything I've said available in the episode notes of this podcast contained again at thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com. So with that all said, that's bye-bye for now, and I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow when we launch off and begin at looking at another one of these amazingly famous passages of Scripture, that's which is described as the feeding of the 5,000. So I do hope you'll come back again tomorrow, and I'll see you very soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.